This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture. It is my great pleasure this evening to introduce the speakers on our panel. This evening, the managers of the Scripps Biological Collections, that's Lindsay Sala, Ben Frabel, and Charlotte Zed. Lindsay, Lindsay Sala joined Scripps in 2010 and is a museum scientist and collections manager of the Pelagic Invertebrate Collection, following an undergraduate degree in biology and chemistry from Illinois State University. Emphasizing insect ecology, Lindsay continued with a graduate degree at San Diego State in marine ecology with a thesis focused on marine invertebrate larval ecology. She now specializes in the identification of invertebrate zooplankton, particularly krill, copepods, and gelatinous tunicates from the California current system. Lindsay is inspired by how identifying organisms can indicate the health and changes within a pelagic ecosystem as it relates to fishery science. So that's the first of our three speakers. The second is Ben Frabel, who is the manager of our marine vertebrate collections at Scripps. He attended the University of Washington in Seattle as an undergraduate, receiving degrees in both fishery science and ecology and evolutionary biology. Following his bachelor's degree, Ben worked as an assistant in ichthyology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. He attended Oregon State University for graduate school, focusing on the evolution of biogeography of a widespread group of South American freshwater fishes colloquially called headstanders and their allies, anastromids, related to tetras and piranhas. He is interested in how and why fishes have diversified through time. Our third speaker, Charlotte said, the manager of the Benthic Invertebrate Collections here at Scripps. Charlotte received her undergraduate degree in chemical and physical biology from Harvard University and her PhD in biology from MIT. Prior to joining Scripps in 2017, she managed the Marine DNA Repository at Northeastern University and worked on lobster health and research at the New England Aquarium. Some of Charlotte's underwater adventures include viewing the Aquarius Undersea Laboratory and diving in the submersible Alvin. Charlotte's work in the benthic invertebrate collection supports projects on biodiversity and evolution in the lab of the collection's curator, Professor Greg Rouse, as well as research and education at Scripps and beyond. So please join me in welcoming all three of these young scientists for a journey through Scripps biological collections. We'll start with an overview of the four Scripps collections by Lindsay Sala. Well, thank you, Harry, for that nice introduction, and thanks to all of you uh, for being here on this nice, warm summer evening. Um, also want to extend a big thank you to Birch Aquarium uh, for the invitation for all of us to speak on these very impressive uh, oceanographic collections that we house at, house at Scripps. Um, and also thanks uh, for the inclusion in this new exhibit, Oddities, in which we were able to highlight um, these well-adapted superpowers that we we find within marine organisms. So the Scripps Oceanographic Collections, um, we have four parts as Harry mentioned, and we'll be talking about the biological collections um, that are focused on marine animals. And we're going to take a journey from the water column down th through to the sea floor. 
And so, well, first, uh, after this brief introduction, we'll hear from Ben Frabel about the marine vertebrate collection, which is also known as the fish collection. And they have 2 million specimens in about 140,000 lots. Then we'll talk about um, the holdings and research within the pelagic invertebrate collection. And we have about 140,000 whole plankton samples that result from individual net toes that are comprised up of greater than 100 million specimens. We additionally have about 10,000 identified reference specimens. And then finally, we'll hear from the uh, benthic invertebrate collection manager about their research and holdings, um, where they have, I've been told now, up to 800,000 uh, specimens and 45,000 lots. So what you see here on the left-hand side are Scripps ships cruise tracks from 1953 to, through present, which has led to many, but not all, of our samples that we have within uh, the Scripps Oceanographic Collection. On the right-hand side of the panel there, you can see each one of uh, the oceanographic collections divided up and their geographic location of the individual samples um, from that that collection. And what you'll notice is that we have an impressive amount of material covering every ocean basin. So what do we do with all of this material that is archived down on Scripps campus? We have researchers that um, we work with locally on a regular basis, but we also have many other visitors that come from all over the world to answer questions about, um, the, about marine animals. And so we have people that will come to us potentially looking for uh, derivatives within marine specimens that could be applied to pharmaceutical science. Um, we also serve as a vast library of not just specimens, but also literature, peer-reviewed publications, and books um, that we house within these collections. We're also a hardware store to get students started on how they can collect their respective specimens and, and bring back animals to answer their specific scientific hypotheses. We've also served as an art gallery. We're reg very regularly working with different artists that are inspired by um, biodesign and how these animals um, make life work in the ocean. And then finally, we serve as a safe deposit box. So each one of our collections um, has a, a special type collection. And type specimens are the individuals of a species that are the first one to describe a species. And this is really pr very prized material. But I will say that every sample within these oceanographic collections are invaluable. They are a unique snapshot of that specimen at that particular point in time. And many of the questions we, we ask with these specimens are planned, but many of them are unplanned. And so many people think about natural history collections as a look into the past or maybe the present, but really we're focused on the future. And being able to routinely preserve specimens, we can answer questions uh, that we didn't really know how to ask and really make discoveries that otherwise would have been inconceivable. So all of us feel that it's truly very important that we continue to collect and archive these materials to make them available to the wider scientific community. Community. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Marine Vertebrate Collection Manager Ben Frabel. Uh, hi there. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, and thank you to, uh, to the Birch for having us um, 
here tonight. So uh, yeah, as Lindsay said, I'm in charge of the marine vertebrates or fish collection here at Scripps. Um, fish specimens have kind of been around at Scripps since before it was Scripps when it was down and Hotel Coronado, um, but it wasn't, our collection wasn't really uh, formally founded until a ich prolific ichthyologist named Carl Hubbs moved here in 1944 from the University of Michigan, and Hubbs was born in Southern California, kind of grew up down here, and, it, and he was very excited to get back to, um, to Southern California, so he moved here, and he had a very express goal of kind of exploring the ichthyofauna, that is the fishes, uh, fish biodiversity of uh, Southern California and also the Eastern Tropical Pacific. And then he was succeeded by uh, Richard or Dick Rosenblatt, who uh, some of you may know, he was equally as prolific and here for about 50 years. Um, and the two of them, uh, Carl Hubbs and, and Dick Rosenblatt, really, uh, and along with their co contemporaries and students, really helped build up this collection um, that, that we have here at Scripps. Now, that is to say, it didn't stop in uh, 2000. Um, our current curator, Phil Hastings, who's in uh, the back of the room uh, right now, um, has continued this uh, legacy. And uh, myself and collection managers prior to me and his students have also contributed to building up this collection. Um, so just some expanding on kind of the little facts that were given earlier. Um, we have about 2 million individual fishes in the collection that have been collected all over the world, and that co is comprised of about 6,000 different species. Now, 6,000 species is quite, quite a few, um, but in the grand kind of scope of fish biodiversity, that's only about a fifth. There's about 35,000 or so um, fish species that have been described, with about four to 500 new species described every year. Um, and so to kind of get an idea of why we only have 6,000, I like to go back to this little map that we sh showed earlier. Um, this, uh, this map was put together by uh, pelagic invertebrate uh, uh, curator Mark Oman, and I thank him for that. Um, so you can see um, our holdings are kind of concentrated. And, and um, the first is this in the eastern Pacific here. You can see very dense sampling. You can't even see California. It's gone. You can barely see Arizona because um, of how dense the sampling is in the eastern Pacific, and especially the eastern tropical Pacific. Um, and, you know, this is, this is kind of where Carl Hubbs wanted to focus his research, and um, we are one of the largest collections for organisms from this part of the world. It's a very unique part of the world. It's a little isolated being on this side of the Pacific Ocean, kind of having that dead zone between Hawaii and uh, the Marquesas, and then over here, there's not no islands. It's very difficult for fish to get across. They, they've been isolated from the Caribbean for about three and a half million years. Um, so the fauna are very unique and distinct here, and it's really awesome that we're able to have such a large collection for researchers to study. Um, and then the other major focus of our collection, um, if you look, a lot of these other dots are kind of offshore. Some of them you can see on latitudinal or longitudinal gradients, and these are oceanographic samples. And um, these, you know, are, are uh, mostly comprised of um, open ocean fishes, but specifically deep sea fauna. And so, um, all these really fun and uh, to us fairly creepy-looking organisms that live in the deep ocean. Some, a lot of which are highlighted over here in oddities. Um, we are one of the largest collections of deep sea. Um, fishes in the United States, if not the world. Um, so I've shown you these couple slides just kind of showing a lot of different diversity and forms. And this is something for me um, as a scientist um, that is kind of one of the most interesting aspects of life on Earth. So um, for me, starting out, pr this started pretty young. Um, I grew up 
And my, my dad and aunt and uncle were really into fossil hunting. Um, I grew up on the East Coast. There's a lot of good fossils around. And so we had, like, fossils around the house. I got really into that. And then when I was, you know, uh, I, I want to say five or six, um, discovered the ocean, got a little book from the library, um, got, got to see the diversity of ocean life. And I kind of, that really resonated with me, just the biodiversity and then the, the alienness of forms, how different marine life is than terrestrial life. Um, and how uh, fascinating that is. So I kind of stuck with that and, um, you know, opened up a lot of opportunities um, uh, to me. Um, mentioned in Charlotte's introduction that um, she got to go to the Aquarius Undersea Research Habitat. Um, funny enough, her and I were actually the two winners of an essay contest the same year to go to the Aquarius Undersea Research Habitat. Um, <laughs> we didn't know that when we both start, took this job, but uh, very exciting. So I was able to do that in high school. And then um, kind of stuck with studying fish and um, through my career, and you can see going from the Pacific Northwest with this beautiful salmon to down here in Baja catching this uh, 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 giant cabrillo. But you know, this interest in biodiversity has really stuck with me. And you know, even though I started with fossils, I'm not continuing to do fossils, I still find them interesting sometimes. And here's uh, me trying to figure out what I found at the Burgess Shale a few years back. Um, and so, in my own personal research. Um, to study biodiversity, uh, a big focus is uh, is on the species. What what is a species? How do we define that? How do we separate species from each other? Um, and how is species div diversified and or lineages split through time? These are questions that I find very interesting. And in doing that kind of research, you come across, um, I guess, what we would call new species, and uh, um, a lot of different not just people who do taxonomy and systematics like myself, but a lot of different researchers um, kind of encounter this. And the, the art and science of describing a new species I find very fascinating. And um, through, through my research and through research at the collections, um, I just want to highlight a couple of the, or well, three of the new species that are kind of being worked on by myself and uh, Professor Hastings and then uh, uh, collection manager emeritus H.J. Walker um, this year. So uh, the first, this beautiful fish up at the top, um, the blue-throated fairy wrasse, you can actually see live on display over there in Tank 30. Um, this is found through the aquarium hobby. And then we also have this really um, not as colorful new grouper species over here on the right um, that is from Taiwan. And then this really cool little pike blenny that um, Dr. Professor Hastings is describing from the, the Gulf of California. Um, and I just, I'm using this to kind of highlight, you know, a lot of people think that um, we figured it out. We found all the fish. They're vertebrates. They're not, you know, deep, deep water worms that nobody's ever seen before. But no, I mean, this, this fish is living 20 feet underwater on coral reefs in Indonesia, Indonesia and the Philippines and it went undiscovered until this year. So there's still a lot of discovery out there. And that kind of um, is, is another really fun driving force and a fun aspect of working in the collection is uh, facilitating this discovery and bringing the specimens and the data from, these, from our collections um, to, the, to researchers and the scientific community um, all over the world. And so it's, it's not just me. You know, I have an army of undergraduates and graduate students working with me. Um, to do this, but you can take the things off these shelves so they're not just moldering in the basement, and we actually distribute the data on websites like this and then also send them all over the world. So this is just a map of everywhere that I've exchanged fishes with or sent fishes in the mail to um, since I started working here uh, two and a half years ago. And you can see it's as far flung as, you know, up in Moscow, South Korea, Hawaii, and the, the U.K., 
And so that aspect is also very rewarding because I'm communicating uh, you know, weekly with these researchers um, and people who are interested in this. And you know, that kind of highlights the research applications and how every specimen in the collection kind of has its own history and story. Um, and and uh, uh, Lindsay kind of uh, talked about this. You know, every fish, uh, every specimen, every sample, it was collected at a specific place, a specific time. Um, and we are able to kind of maintain those records and, and, and help scientists build off of them. So just a couple uh, quick examples of kind of fun um, applications of that in the collection. So this one's really cool. We um, recently have acquired UCLA's ichthyology collection, um, and we have moved it down here to Scripps, and are maintaining it down here. And it was a very important collection, especially of fishes in the tropical eastern Pacific. They did some of the first exploration of the offshore islands in the eastern Pacific, including Clipperton Atoll, which is the farthest east atoll in the entire Pacific Ocean. And it's way down here off the coast of uh, Mexico, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And back in 1958, um, Wayne Baldwin and Connie Limbaugh, um, some of you may know the name Conrad Limbaugh, he was a pioneer of scientific scuba diving um, down here at Scripps and one of the first people to actually um, wear a wetsuit <laughs> because they were developed here at Scripps. Um, but I, had this, I came across in the field notes from 1958 this silly little illustration of a wrasse. And I was like, hmm, wonder what they're trying to draw. Um, so I went and I found the specimen. This is a photograph of that specimen that was illustrated. Um, and it's a, a type of wrasse called a rock mover wrasse or dragon wrasse. Um, those of you who keep marine aquaria may know this fish. It's a fairly charismatic fish. You can find them at the aquarium store. Um, here are some kind of images of them in life, a little more colorful than the preserved specimen. But uh, what is really crazy about this particular individual is this is actually the first record of this fish in the eastern Pacific Ocean. Um, it is a very common fish. Uh, throughout the Western Pacific. The top is a photograph I took of one in Japan. That's a picture of one in, in Hawaii. But prior to this, they didn't know they made it all the way over here. And so this really, you know, this one specimen contributed to kind of being able to figure out biogeography, how fish are able to spread from the Western Pacific into the Eastern Pacific Ocean. Um, now, just a, uh, one or two more quick examples here. Um, uh, something that we always talk about on tours and um, people have kind of talked about before is our um, Scripps's role in kind of deciphering um, heavy metals in the open ocean. I know this is a kind of an abrupt shift, um, but uh, bear with me. Um, as uh, some, almost all of you are aware, you shouldn't eat tuna more than a couple days a once or twice a week. Um, it has heavy metals in the, in the tissue. And um, that was really kind of um, first thought about in the 1950s and 60s. Um, they were looking at bird feathers from museum collections. And then um, some researchers at UC Irvine and, and, and researchers down here at UCSD were interested um, in looking at this and other things. And so uh, these folks were actually able to use um, tuna and swordfish specimens from the Scripps fish collection and look at the heavy metal contents of these historical records and actually build um, right up here in the middle kind of a um, estimation of how these metal this heavy metal mercury and other heavy metal content has changed and increased um, in time through uh, in the in the flesh of um, these large apex predators in the open ocean and kind of reconstruct that and correlate it with the rise of um, you know, increased pollution and anthropogenic effects on the uh, world's oceans. And so really quickly, um, I'll just finish up with one last example that I, that I really like, um, and that is the role that Scripps researchers, especially uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, um, had in kind of describing the first um, fishes that lived on hydrothermal vents. So hydrothermal vents were discovered in 1977. These are these, you know, um, 
communities of organisms that are living in the deep ocean around um, areas where hydrothermal activity, very hot water is coming out. Um, and then you have these whole communities that are existing without the need of or influence of photosynthesis. It was a revolution for understanding how life may have evolved on the planet. Um, the first few times they were down there, and they, once they finally discovered these, they saw fish, but they weren't able to catch them. It's very difficult um, to kind of get Alvin's little s suction arm in there, um, a lot of tube worms in the way. Um, and so they have this photograph of, of the fish from 1979, but it wasn't actually until 1988 that they were able to collect them. And, and they only collected one, <laughs> and it's here at Scripps. Um, and it's this fish up here in these illustrations um, called Bathytes holosai. Um, I didn't bring it with me. It's not in great shape, and it's the only one that's ever been collected, so I didn't want to bring that up on the shelf. But I do have the second one that was ever described here. Um, this is a fish called Thermarces, um, and this is also um, an obligate living on these, these very unique vent communities, and that's kind of a, a fun um, contribution that Scripps has had to kind of figuring out the profound uh, breadth of life on this planet. Um, so now I'm going to uh, turn it back over to Lindsay Sala to kind of uh, talk about uh, herself and the uh, pelagic invertebrates collection. All right. Thanks, Ben. Okay. So the uh, pelagic invertebrates, pelagic meaning open ocean or open water, um, and invertebrates, animals without backbones. Uh, we commonly call many of these animals zooplankton. Zoo meaning animal, planktos meaning wandering or drifting. So these are the wanderers or free swimming uh, animals without backbones that reside in the water column. And this uh, plankton mandala that you see uh, on the screen there is from a recent book published in 2015 by Christian Sarday. And I think it really brings to light the beauty of all the different forms of um, animals, uh, invertebrates in the ocean. There are some benthic invertebrates in there as well. But um, I'll direct you to something that you might be familiar with, that jellyfish up on the top or um, some other jellies strewn about. I think there might be a squid specimen in there. But there are also many other um, zooplankton groups that people are not familiar with, which include arrowworms and comb jellies and copepods, amphipods, ostracods, um, and they are all very uniquely adapted for their environments. Some of these animals um, also highlighted in, in the oddities exhibit. And so these uh, zooplankton feed, many of them feed on phytoplankton, which is this small plant-like uh, material that is photosynthesizing at the surface of the ocean and releasing oxygen. So now I want to invite you to take two breaths. That's one. And second. So for that first breath, you can thank the phytoplankton, which is responsible for producing over half of the oxygen on our planet and feeding many of, of these uh, zooplankters. So to transition into the collection, we now know that we have a rich history here at Scripps, and this is an image of our plankton collection in 1911 that has grown to an immense repository uh, where we have these large mobile stack uh, shelving units with things compacted into boxes so that we can fit a lot more material. And each one of our collections are actively growing every single year. 
So within my collection, uh, we have over 140,000 whole plankton samples, and I've thrown that couple of words out uh, a few times now, and the image on the bottom actually shows you what a whole plankton sample looks like. It's the result of towing a net behind a ship, and so it's all the animals that come up in that one collection event. These specific samples were actually collected with a multiple opening and closing net system, so these are discrete depth windows that were collected going down in depth. So you can see the change in abundance and distribution of animals um, within that one single collection event. Now, the majority of our material is preserved in formaldehyde to morphologically identify sample or specimens, but we also have a large collection of samples preserved in ethanol that's suitable for DNA and molecular analysis. So just as Ben stated, it's not just me working down um, in the archives. Uh, I work very closely with uh, distinguished professor and curator, Dr. Mark Ullman, that you can see over there on the right-hand side, and his lab of students. And um, with this, in this picture, this is some of his students, but also some other undergraduates, uh, graduates and postdoctoral researchers that are actively using the collection um, today. And so these are some of the local folks that are around the collection, but as I mentioned before, we have and host people from all over the world uh, to look at our samples. So one thing I realized pretty early on uh, when I started at Scripps and really appreciated was the continuity um, and sharing of knowledge and expertise. And I was very fortunate uh, to be able to learn um, the identity of the groups of animals that I now currently work on um, and um, the biology and ecology related to those animals from some pretty amazing female scientists that spent their entire lifetime here at Scripps. And so uh, Annie Townsend is up there on the left-hand corner with Dr. Ed Brinton. These two are world-renowned eufaucid or krill uh, taxonomists and biogeographers. Um, also, Marnie Knight down here on the left-hand uh, corner, she was a specialist in um, decapod crustaceans, shrimp and crabs, particularly their larval life stage when they are free swimming in the open ocean. Um, and then Connie Fay, who worked at Scripps for 42 years, um, and I'm still working with her to learn more about the calanoid copepods, which are those two small animals you can see. They're only a couple millimeters in body size. Um, and I will mention, too, that Annie worked at Scripps for 39 years, 20 of which with Ed Brinton and 20 with Mark Oman. Um, so you could imagine there's a vast amount of knowledge that needs to be passed down when they've been working at, in these collections for that amount of time. And so it was a really great experience being able to work with these, these people as I was learning. Um, I knew as well pretty early on uh, that I loved terrestrial insects. I grew up in Chicago, and you can see me there at the age of four or five when I knew I would wear glasses. And I have uh, the molted skin from a cicada on my shirt that I was displaying and showing off to my parents. <laughs> um, and probably in the summertime when the locusts are around. Um, and then a little later on here is where I have a jar of, I think it's salmon eggs that I was about to go fishing with. Um, and little did I know that I'd be caring for another hundreds of thousands of jars and specimens preserved in time as a full-time career down the line. Um, so I've been pretty dedicated uh, to collecting specimens and understanding their life histories and how they interact with the environment, how we interact in effect 
these animals as well. So now to get into some important sample sets and research that um, has been going on uh, from uh, resulting from the use of our samples. So I have to mention um, the CalCoffee program, which is the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigation. And this was a, uh, it is a, a collaboration between National Marine Fisheries at NOAA, Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and California. California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And this program started in the mid-1940s following the crash of the sardine fishery in an effort to monitor that particular fishery off the coast of California. It has since grown to a huge ecosystem monitoring program where they're still sampling four times a year at these specific locations, collecting net tow samples, where the um, fish eggs and larvae are identified at the Southwest um, Fishery Science Center, and then on an annual basis, I identify uh, the krill and copepods and all the invertebrate zooplankton from that sample series, which makes up about 75,000 samples. So, as you could imagine, a lot of publications have uh, resulted from the use of this beautiful time series. It's the longest standing time series of uh, samples like of its kind. And so we've been able to look at... Um, things like the California spiny lobster and identifying their larval stage as a proxy for the adult population. Same goes for the larvae of the California market squid. Um, in addition, many other groups of uh, zooplankton have been looked at throughout time and seeing how they, um, their abundances are changing and how they're interacting with different climate change effects, um, like the calanoid copepods, and then also there are shelled and non-shelled mollusks or, um, that resemble the uh, benthic snails within our samples as well. So... Then I had a project come through that wanted to use the CalCoffee time series that I didn't anticipate. And I had a few researchers from uh, Louisiana State University and University of uh, Santa Cruz come down and say, we want to know if a biological event perhaps inspired Alfred Hitchcock to make the classic The Birds. And so they told me that there was a biological event that occurred on the, sh on the shores of uh, Santa Cruz County where seabirds were acting in a crazed state, which could have potentially been due to the neurological effects from eating fish and invertebrate zooplankton that had fed on a uh, species of diatom. Um, that pr potentially produces toxins. So we dug into the CalCoffee time series, the summer samples from 1961, pulled out uh, some krill and also this gelatinous animal up in the right-hand corner called a salp. We were able to identify these. The researchers dissected out their gut contents, looked at the contents under scanning electron microscopy, and lo and behold, found the toxic-forming pseudonychia, thus proving that this biological event um, inspired um, Alfred Hitchcock. So of course, it was a bit exaggerated by the time it made it to the Hollywood screen, um, but a really unanticipated and fun use uh, of, of this collection. And so now I want to talk about a more recent project um, that I've been involved in over the last about five years with um, a PhD student at Scripps. And um, we were working together on um, krill, and she was interested in blue whale feeding. And so 
Uh, there are 86 known species of krill in the ocean. 39 of those species reside in the California current. Very biodiverse. A couple of those species actually form very dense aggregations, which are particularly useful when you're the largest animal on the planet, the blue whale, feeding almost exclusively on krill. Um, so, Cat Nichols, who is now Dr. Cat Nichols, um, wanted to know what these blue whales were feeding on, if they were feeding on particular species or sizes. And so the way we had to do this was to look at their fecal material. So in this aerial shot, you can see two blue whales and an egestion event in which their fecal material is pink floating at the surface. Um, so a cat was out conducting uh, whale surveys, and it floats at the surface for a short period of time. You can speed a boat over, collect it, preserve it, and bring it back to the lab. And what we were looking for were the mandibles or the mouth parts of these krill, which are made out of silica and undigested. And so she was sorting those, and she said, you know, I want to know if we can actually identify the teeth to the species. I said, okay, I'm going to dig into some archive samples. We chose eight of the most numerically dominant krill species in our region of interest, which is the southern sector of the California current. And I got to doing some oral surgery on about 300 krill. <laughs> and so... Uh, measuring their total body lengths, measuring the teeth, looking at the characteristics to see if there's a relationship between the total length of the tooth and the total length of the krill. So then we could reconstruct what the whales had been eating. Um, and so I'm very happy to announce that our uh, paper was just accepted last week and will be published later this fall. Um, and so this is what krill teeth look like. And I got to uh, give my shot at uh, my first round of scientific illustration. And these are some corresponding digital photographs of the krill teeth that we can see unique characteristics in. Um, so a really fun, um, interesting application to a lot of our materials within the collection. And I have one more project that is most impressive. Um, and that is a paper that was published in 2013 that described the larval life history of a very deep living krill called Thysinopoda egregia. And you may recognize uh, this man in the middle there from my earlier photo. That's Dr. Ed Brinton, um, who spent his life dedicated to um, the euphausids. And he began sorting larvae from, these, from our samples, and they were looking back at uh, 60 years. And the, because these animals live 1,000 to 2,000 meters below depth, you have to sort a lot of samples to find enough specimens to describe this animal. So after 60 years, 10,000 samples, 259 cruises, they had enough specimens uh, in order to describe this animal. And without the use of the collection and the continuity of people and expertise, this would never be possible. Um, by the time this paper was published, um, Ed Brinton had passed, and he was kept primary author, and all of his colleagues also um, on the paper, so I felt really lucky to be part of this very special project um, to finally bring it to light um, after quite a few years of dedicated effort. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Charlotte in the Benthic Collection. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. Welcome, everyone. 
Great. Uh, another thank you to the Bridge Aquarium for hosting us. The next part of your journey will take you to the deep sea. Uh, the benthic zone is the bottom of the ocean. And uh, one of our claims to fame is the deep sea, some of the most inaccessible and alien parts of our planet. So I'll talk a bit about those. Um, but our collections are all friends. We all get along very well. Uh, but as you see, there's simply too much diversity for any one or even two of us to manage. Uh, so that's why you're seeing two invertebrate collections here today. So the Benthic invertebrate collection includes uh, many animals that might be familiar to you. Uh, this is a pie chart showing uh, roughly the distribution of our holdings. So uh, in the upper uh, left in yellow, we have uh, many annelid worms, and you will hear about uh, some superpowers of those in oddities and in Greg's upcoming talk. We have uh, many arthropods, including crabs, lobsters, uh, and some of their lesser known relatives. We have mollusks, including gastropods, like the beautiful shells you might see on the seashore, but also cephalopods, bivalves, um, many things we see, find in seafood buffets. Um, elect, um, echinoderms over there are represented by the, the sea star. Cnidarians represented by the sea anemone and uh, sponges. And the gray is kind of everything else, which includes a lot of diversity. But this is just a, a thousand foot overview of the kinds of uh, organisms we have in the benthic collection. A lot of diversity uh, that we're still uncovering. Uh, so again, our holdings by the numbers, we have about 800,000 individual specimens, and those are contained in about 45,000 lots or jars, some of which you can see up here. I definitely encourage you to take a closer look at uh, some of our representatives. We have about 7,600 well-described species, that, and there's a big plus at the end of that because it, that number is constantly growing. We are constantly uh, discovering new species. And uh, of course, we have a wealth of material in the collection that hasn't necessarily been identified to species, or it's still in progress. So that's a vast underestimate, and that is a good and exciting thing in many ways. Uh, our collection is fortunate to have uh, many uh, holotypes and paratypes, which were mentioned earlier by the other managers. So these are the exemplars that define a species. Uh, when you are the lucky person who gets to define a new species, you choose one specimen that is the gold standard. You may illustrate it, take photos of it, uh, describe it in exquisite scientific detail uh, using words and figures, and that uh, specimen gets deposited in a safe collection like one of ours. So we're very proud to have these scientifically priceless exemplars. Uh, so these are the holotypes. Uh, paratypes are the supporting actors, uh, the ones that also uh, play an important role in describing the species, uh, but are not the one representative. So again, these are some of our crown jewels in the collection. Um, all of our collections are proud to have those, and uh, those are some of uh, the most asked about specimens um, when uh, visitors come. Uh, those are kept in a safe deposit box in our uh, shelved areas. Uh, but they're one of our claims to fame. I'm showing you again this map of where specimens have been collected. Uh, so you'll notice there are a lot, of course, in the Eastern Pacific. And uh, if you're a geology nerd, you might notice that many of these follow uh, geological patterns of the tectonic plates, so areas uh, with hydrothermal vents uh, kind of along that Eastern Pacific. Uh, but really, we have uh, animals from all around the world. I'd like to go into a few highlights. Uh, so again, we have 
almost everything from anywhere, uh, but we are very fortunate at Scripps to have experts in deep sea biology. We have access to fantastic ships, resources, technology that can go to, again, some of the most alien and inaccessible places on the planet. Uh, ben mentioned hydrothermal vents, uh, where life was discovered that completely changed the way we think about ourselves, the biology, and what's possible. So uh, here on the left are some iconic uh, giant tube worms. You can see one in its full glory and oddities. Uh, so these are sort of the poster child for chemosynthetic ecosystems, uh, life based on bacteria that use energy from chemicals rather than photosynthesis from the sun. Uh, but they're certainly not the only kind of chemosynthetic environment. Uh, that was also kind of mind-blowing to science around the same time, the late 70s and 80s. So uh, one of the things that our lab is interested in is the comparisons among these kinds of ecosystems. You have hydrothermal vents, uh, but also methane seeps or cold seeps where you don't have uh, that kind of heat, uh, but you do have hydrocarbons and other energy-rich compounds seeping from the seafloor, uh, supporting, again, bacterial-driven ecosystems. And uh, they're strikingly different from each other and from hydrothermal vents. Uh, there's astounding diversity depending on where you are in the world. And that's one of the things we're kind of trying to wrap our heads around. Why are these communities so different? How, how do they compare? Uh, another such ecosystem is whale falls. Uh, it's a sad event for the whale, but it's amazing for the deep sea life that generally doesn't get this kind of energy, that mass of carbon. Uh, as that whale decomposes, it releases hydrogen sulfide and many chemicals that have strange similarities to uh, hydrothermal vents and methane seeps. So these three ecosystems are one of our claims to fame. Uh, we are lucky to have thousands and thousands of specimens from uh, these unique uh, chemical oases of life. Uh, another one of our highlights is Antarctica. Um, so we have two extensive cruises um, that focused on the Scotia Arc uh, down at the bottom of South America. Uh, this area is important uh, because it can give us clues to the genetic connectivity between these continents. Also, it's been touched on before, the collections tell us how biodiversity is changing across space and time. Uh, unfortunately, the poles are changing uh, more quickly than other areas of the world, so by keeping an eye on Antarctica, uh, that may give us some clues as to how the rest of the world ecosystem is going to be affected by changing climate and other ocean conditions. So these are just a few uh, representative photos of specimens from these fantastic cruises. I have one specimen. It's a, a feather star that you can take a look uh, at up here. And I can't describe everything up, up here right now, but please uh, see for yourself online. We're very proud that um, much of our data has been digitized. Uh, in many cases, you can search for your favorite animal on our online catalog. You can see a photo of it. You can see on Google Maps exactly where it was collected, uh, a snapshot of the story, who collected it, when, where, why. Uh, so there's a handy URL if you are curious. But this is how scientists discover the specimens they need from us. Uh, they're certainly welcome to come and visit and browse the stacks themselves, um, but digitization is an important part of what we do. And uh, there are only so many of us here to go around. Um, it's a lot of work to transcribe data, and that's what my wonderful crew of students have been helping with. But once it's online, it is discoverable to the world, and that is so important to our jobs and our work today. 
Uh, if you haven't had a chance to visit Vaughn Hall, we are down the hill. That's where the three biological collections are located. Uh, so I'm going to take you kind of through a tour of uh, where we are, who we are, and just generally what life is like in our collection. Uh, this is a view of the benthic invertebrate collection. So we have 21 of these brown compactors. They slide together like old-style library shelves to, sa uh, to save space, and we'll often do tours in uh, this little front area. Uh, so again, we couldn't bring all these specimens up to you. You're seeing a few of our biggest and baddest at oddities, but this is really home for us. Something I can't emphasize enough is the collections don't manage themselves as much as I would like to. I, I wish all the uh, specimens came with a label fresh out of the sea, but they simply don't. So uh, there's uh, lifetimes of, of work to do here. Um, it's amazing. It's the best, uh, the best job ever for me, but it is a lot to do and a huge responsibility. So in the Benthic collection, uh, we have two permanent staff members. That's myself and curator Greg Rouse. Uh, but we're also lucky to have many students who have been helping us out in various ways. Um, so some of them are here tonight. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I can't get into everybody's project, uh, but these are just some of the wonderful undergraduates and recent graduates uh, who make this collection work, whether that is simply transcribing labels, finding typos that are decades and decades old. Um, seriously, if you switch a four and a five, someone won't be able to discover that specimen online. So uh, these students are my lifesavers for uh, really making that data discoverable. Amanda and Martin with the sea pigs here um, in our oddities exhibit uh, have been working on a massive collection of specimens that I'll get to shortly, uh, but they are uh, they're bringing in specimens from Canada from hydrothermal vents, and uh, right now they're uh, single-handedly the force uh, behind bringing uh, this, this vast wealth of specimens into our collection, getting everything sorted and labeled properly. Uh, so again, I, I'm so grateful for all the students here. Um, Sophia down in the corner uh, is a scientific illustrator, so she's working with the lab to uh, describe and draw new species. And then the collection in use. Uh, so as the other managers have mentioned, these specimens go around the world. I am best friends with the FedEx people. I am constantly shipping things everywhere. Um, but just a, a snapshot of the people in our lab, uh, Professor Greg Rouse's lab, who are using specimens. Uh, many of them also are here today. Uh, so one of the focuses of this lab is diversity uh, at a genetic level. And uh, how these superpowers, if you will, uh, how they're spread uh, among animals and their relatives, and how that can give us clues to, if you will, their origin stories. If you see this amazing adaptation, is it shared with members of that animal's family tree? Uh, is it an oddity in the strictest sense? Was it sort of a new or recent development? And that's something that you can really only get at uh, by studying these animals in exquisite detail and uh, by using the clues in DNA. So each of the folks here um, uh, has specialized in uh, a group. Many of them have uh, discovered and named new species. It's kind of mind-blowing how commonplace that is in our lab. Yeah, no big deal, 14 new species in one paper. Uh, you can actually see that paper in the oddities exhibit. And you can hear um, much more about some of the superstars in Greg's upcoming talk. Uh, but again, all these people uh, have done a fantastic job contributing to the collection by identifying species, um, by 
uh, sharing their expertise, uh, but they also rely on it. Um, if they can't take a trip all around the world to collect their favorite kinds of worms, they can virtually take that trip by visiting the shelves of the collections and using specimens um, for over decades and decades. Uh, we also use these specimens for education, outreach, and art purposes. Uh, so here are just a few examples of illustrators and photographers who've been inspired by us. Uh, in the right corner, um, these are uh, third graders in Kentucky who've never seen the ocean. Um, but thanks to specimens from our class, they were able to hold animals from the bottom of the sea and, um, again, access these incredibly remote and alien environments indirectly. Uh, at the bottom right, this is an exhibit at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Uh, it was funded by James Cameron, about James Cameron, and uh, his, <laughs> uh, his incredible feats of engineering and exploration. He deserves it. Uh, but we were, uh, we were contacted and asked to, own, uh, to loan some amphipods from uh, the Mariana Trench uh, from his expedition. In fact, you can see one of those amphipods uh, that didn't get sent to Australia. It's the one in the, the tiny unassuming vial, but that came from 11,000 meters deep, which is a long way to be with, your, uh, with you here tonight. One question that we get a lot is, why do you need so many specimens? That's a lot of shelves, that's a lot of animals. And the answer is we do need them for purposes that we know now and purposes we can only imagine in the future. First of all, we never want to be wasteful. We recognize we are taking these animals' lives, but they are giving so much in terms of scientific knowledge. Each one represents a place and a time and a story that can never be replicated again. I wish we could go back to 1902, um, to some of our earliest specimens. Those are time capsules right now in our collection. Uh, there's so much variation within a species, even from the exact same place and time. You have females, males, juveniles, life stages that don't even have human equivalents. Uh, you might have freaks and mutants. Uh, you might have regional variation. Uh, and you may simply need to use the same specimens for different purposes. I'm glad we have spares. Uh, we love having them on display. But what if I need that worm? Uh, what if my tours need that? Um, so there are, there are so many uses, and every single one of them has its purpose. Uh, a brief overview of uh, life in the collection. Um, many people might think from what you see in this exhibit and sort of the highlights that it's all adventure all the time. Um, that's certainly a lot of fun. Um, I wish I got to play in submersibles, go diving, and you know, spend all of my time at sea. Not really. It's actually a lot of work. Um, so this is the fun part, and sometimes uh, life in the collection really is a, a true adventure story, and I'm so grateful for that. It's amazing. Um, but also there's a day-to-day -day heroism in some of the more uh, mundane tasks that we do. Uh, so my favorite part of the oddities exhibit, hands down, is the collection manager's desk. Um, and it cracks me up every time because my to-do list has never been that short. Um, <laughs> So this is a, a screenshot of my electronic to-do list. It's kind of frightening. Uh, but <laughs> again, it, it's, it's all really important things, and I'm glad they're mine to do. Uh, I'm briefly mentioning uh, the electronic declarations we have to do every time we ship uh, specimens electronically. There's a lot of paperwork and due diligence. Again, we take our roles very seriously. We want to protect these species and their habitats, so we follow the rules, and that means a lot of paperwork. <laughs> Um, this is a little snapshot of a messy desk from one of my students helping to digitize some, uh, some shells from a recent collection. So it's not always adventure, but it is always important. 
Uh, a bit about my career path. So this was the first specimen I ever cataloged. Uh, my octopus is purple. Also, <laughs> uh, I've, uh, like my colleagues, always been interested in marine life. I've also been very bookish and organized and like keeping records uh, because I'm weird. <laughs> Uh, so I was fortunate to have um, a wonderful educational experience. I studied microbiology and genetics, which is a bit of a far cry from um, the, the specialized marine biological knowledge that many people here have at, at Scripps. Uh, so for me, DNA was kind of the common factor. I was really interested in how life in all its forms works at that, uh, that really chemical level. Uh, so I... I spent my PhD working on bacteria, but after that kind of did some soul searching, thought about how I wanted to apply that knowledge, and it really came back to uh, that, that deep love of the ocean. Uh, for me, my career was uh, after grad school was a, a few um, very uncertain stepping stones. Uh, I worked at the New England Aquarium of, on lobsters, which was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, did not pay, so I had a good time making lattes. Um, I did not make those lattes. Do not ask me to make that shape. Uh, but I, I also uh, was then lucky enough to gain some experience at a small collection at Northeastern University. So for me, stepping stones were absolutely essential in uh, getting some on-the-job experience, um, building my knowledge of marine science, and uh, fusing that with genetics. So I see there are many young people in the audience. Um, for me, really stepping stones, even at uh, a bit of a risk and uh, changing career paths, were important. Um, so I was lucky to find this home at Scripps, and I'm not the only one. Uh, collections, unfortunately, these days are becoming an endangered species. There are many experts out there who've amassed collections of priceless specimens over their careers, and not all of them are lucky enough to have three managers and a, a Vaughn Hall to spare. Uh, so we, uh, at the Benthic Invertebrate Collection, have been adopting orphans, if you will. Um, two of our colleagues, um, Verena Tenecliffe and Bob Ryanhook, are retiring. Uh, their life's work, um, deep sea specimens that have been absolutely influential in science and in uh, guiding the formation of marine protected areas. Uh, these are absolutely essential specimens, but they just didn't have the space in the facilities to keep them at their home institutions. So we were fortunate to have this grant, uh, this grant proposal that was funded uh, by the National Science Foundation to save the orphans, to bring them to Scripps. So they're now getting a second chance. And that is Martin and Amanda's project, um, cataloging all these specimens at BIC. Um, so yeah, they arrived on my first day of work, 32 yellow bins from Canada. Uh, how's that for a start? Um, but I can see the floor now. It's great. <laughs> Uh, and also, I kid you not, this happened this morning. Um, Greg had written a report about the orphan collections uh, we'd taken in, and we got an email from another professor, um, uh, Kevin Echelbar at the University of Maine. Uh, he's also a, an emeritus retired. He was afraid his specimens were going to end up in a landfill. So he got in touch with us, and we are going to salvage another person's career's worth of work. Again, priceless specimens, millions of dollars of ship time that you could never find again. Um, we were lucky they're having a home at BIC. So now we are uh, wrapping up as, as sort of a bookend to uh, Lindsay's start about why collections matter. I have a few examples uh, sort of about things in the news these days. Uh, this doesn't look very fun. This doesn't look like um, you know, anything you'd see in your garage. These are mining machines. Um, Nautilus Minerals is a, a company that is um, slated to be the first to start mining hydrothermal vents in the deep sea. 
this is going to be an issue for our times. Um, hydrothermal vents we've you know, just discussed are uh, unique and scientifically important, but they're also the sources of minerals that we as humans need. So how do we make those decisions? Which events do we mine? Where do we mine? Um, I certainly don't have the answers, none of us do, but we hope that those decisions can be guided by science, by data. Uh, for example, if we know that some vents are hotspots of diversity or they are sources of genetic diversity that then go uh, to colonize other vents, maybe don't attack the source first. Um, we, again, hope these decisions will be made by science and the collections are absolutely the bedrock of that science. Uh, also in the news these days, we hear about um, extraterrestrial exploration. Uh, so there's an artist rendering of um, seas under, uh, under Europa and the um, methane on, on Titan. Don't get me wrong, I would love specimens from Europa. Uh, but we also have methane seeps 30 miles offshore of Scripps. So uh, it's all well and good and great to think about exploring other worlds, but wouldn't it be embarrassing if we found the same chemistry or shocking similarities right in our own backyard? Uh, so when we think about these uh, you know, lofty feats of exploration, uh, those are happening close to home as well. I would like to take just a moment to reflect. Uh, Lindsay had you take two deep breaths. Uh, so I, I'd like to have you think about what brought you here today. Everyone here has a love of the ocean, a connection to the ocean. Maybe you grew up around the water. Uh, maybe you love this aquarium, as we all do. Maybe you really like seafood. So whatever brings you here, whatever connected you to the ocean, I hope you can think of a way that collections and our science can help that interest and that passion directly or indirectly. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.